Well, on the 8th of September, uh, 2022, there was a moon landing moment. What's a moon landing moment? Well, it's a sort of moment in history where you always remember where you were when you heard it. Uh, where Katie and I were on that date was in England. Uh, we were visiting my family for a, my cousin's wedding and we were huddled around a radio in my aunt's uh, kitchen when we heard the news that Queen Elizabeth had died. And it was silent and there was this moment of awe to think that the Queen had passed. Uh, the next day, Katie and I happened to be flying out of London so we thought, why don't we go into London early to witness this incredible event at the heart of it in London at Buckingham Palace. Uh, we drove in in our car and as we arrived, we could hear the cannons going off, the 96 cannon salute for the Queen. And we kind of joined the crowds as we pilgrimed to uh, the, the castle there in London, to Buckingham Palace. And then as we arrived, a stir kind of started happening. Um, there was a barricade on the road and people started kind of rushing up to the barricade. So we, as part of the crowd, thought, all right, let's see what's happening here. We kind of ran over to the barricade and then a motorcycle zipped down the barricade with its lights flashing and we all thought, okay, what's happening here? And then another car and then another car and then all this line of cars started coming and right in the middle of the cars, there he was, King Charles his first public appearance, and we were there for it. And it was this weird kind of moment where he was grieving the loss of his mum and it felt like everyone just wanted to give him a hug, but you couldn't, because he was now the king. There was barricades up, there were police and security guards around for him to come out to look at the flowers, and as he walked in through the gates to Buckingham Palace and they were shut, it was clear that although we wanted to give him a hug, we couldn't. Because he's royalty, he is the king. See, there's this kind of barrier that exists between the public and royalty. Even our beloved now Queen Mary, Queen of Denmark, once a, a lady who lived in Tasmania, who you could probably have a beer at the pub with, well, you're not going to do that now. She's the queen. You won't see her in a Hobart pub. No, there's a, there's a distance between regular people and royalty. Because of the status of Queen Mary, because of the status of who King Charles now is, we can't just approach them for a hug or a beer. They live in this world that doesn't seem to intersect with regular people. There's barriers between us and them. Sometimes we get glimpses into them. We see them in a car or we might see them on a balcony. But they're different to us. They're not like us. They're unapproachable. And that makes them kind of unrelatable to us. And they're far off. They're distant. They're behind their fences. They're security guards. Now, sadly, sometimes, this is how we can feel about God. I know it's true of me that sometimes I feel like God just exists in a world that doesn't intersect with mine. That he's far off, I can't approach him. He's kind of unrelatable, he doesn't know how I feel. He's distant in a different world. 
But today in Luke chapter 2, we see that that is not true. And my hope is that as we look at this as a church family today, that we are reminded that our God is not like the kings of this world. He doesn't exist in some place that doesn't relate to us. No, our God is approachable, he's relatable, and he's near to us. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 together. If you want to stop fanning your faces and open up your outlines, it's there for you. Uh, We've been working through chapter 1 together. And in chapter 1, the angel appeared to Mary, and this is what the angel said, that you, Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And since that proclamation of the angel, we've been awaiting the birth of this king. This king whose kingdom will never end. And we get it at the start of chapter 2. We get the story of Jesus' birth. So open up your outlines or your Bibles there to chapter 2, verse 1. In verse 1 it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now Luke here, he continues as he has been in chapter 1, giving us lots of historical details to show that this is a real birth, this is a real moment in history, this is not some fairy tale. The first king that we meet here is Caesar Augustus. He was the first emperor of Rome, and he was a real person. He lived on this earth. Here is a photo. That's his house. You can go there and visit. The same uh, holiday that Katie and I went on to see uh, the king, we saw Augustus' house. You can see Casa di Augusto. That wasn't originally there when Augustus lived there. But that is where Augustus lived. This is the inside of his house. right? He was a real person. He lived really in Rome, in history, when Jesus was born. You can also look up Quirinius, this governor of the area of Syria, and you can look into the different censuses that he had uh, part of doing. Now, there's debate over time frames and trying to fit together which census fitted where uh, when Quirinius was governor and when Augustus was uh, emperor of Rome. And there's different ways in which you can fit it together to find the date of when this happened. But the point that Luke is making here is this is history. This is real events that are taking place in Luke chapter 2. Remember, right at the start of his gospel, Luke says that he wants his friend to know for certain the things he's heard. So his friend Theophilus, he probably couldn't have gone and checked out Augustus' house. He wouldn't have been allowed there. But he could go and he could check up on these facts, that this really happened, this birth really took place. But the presence of Augustus here isn't just a reminder of the history and that Jesus' birth was real. It's also a reminder to Theophilus, Luke's friend who's reading this, of the might of the Roman emperor when this is all taking place. See, Theophilus would have still been living under this this Roman empire. Augustus maybe was dead by then. But the Romans still ruled supreme. They ruled over a kingdom that seemed like it would never end. 
the amazing thing in this story is that the king of this empire, Augustus, it's his decree that sets in motion the fulfilment of God's promise that there would be a new king. A new king who would truly rule forever. See, as we read on in Luke's gospel from verse 4, it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. See, because of Augustus's decree that the census, everyone had to go to their hometown, well, this young couple, Joseph and Mary, well, they have to make the pilgrimage from Nazareth, where they're living, back to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. And in doing so, they fulfill a promise that God had made about 800 years before this event. See, way back in Micah, a prophet of the Old Testament, we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. See, although Luke's friend Theophilus, who would be reading this, felt like the Romans were in control, what we see here is that even Augustus, even the emperor of Rome, Rome's first emperor, was actually under God's control. See, God is the king over this world and God has his hands on the history that is taking place in this story. It's Augustus's decree that leads to Joseph returning back to Bethlehem to fulfill the promise that God had always made, that his king would come from Bethlehem, a small town. And this king is about to be born. Uh, about to be born. Uh, we read on and we get the birth of this king, Jesus. Uh, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, in verse 6. And she, that's Mary, uh, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. That's it. That is the story of the birth of the king of the universe. Two verses. And not only just two verses, look at the details here. Mary, well, she has to wrap up Jesus herself. There's no one there to help her with it. And then she places him in a manger. That's a feeding trough for animals. Because we read there was no guest room that was available for them to stay in, in Bethlehem. Now, people have debated back and forth whether uh, this took place in a stable or whether it was in a cave or maybe a part of the house where the animals were kept. But the clear thing is here that this young couple about to give birth are, are rejected. There's no room for them. They end up in a dirty place where there's animals. And this king, Jesus, the king of the world, is put into an animal trough. This is not the kind of birth you expect of a king. Here's a photo from King Charles's birth. You can see cute King Charles there uh, with the queen, a yet-to-be queen there, holding him. And the family surrounds them. They're in this royal room. You can see he's wearing a ridiculously long, kind of weirdly wedding gowny looking thing. 
But this is what you expect of a king's birth, right? Royalty, pomp, and, and amazing things, grandeur. The king is born. That's not what Jesus' birth was like at all. Jesus was born into poverty. He had a humble birth, and it was a lonely birth. Did you notice that there's no mention of any family members there with Joseph and Mary? Uh, just a few verses earlier, uh, we've got the story of Mary and Joseph's relatives, Elizabeth and Zechariah, giving birth to John, who had become John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. Um, and there we read that when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son, and her neighbours and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. But here, in Jesus' case, there's no family there to share the joy of these new parents. Jesus' birth was a lonely, humble birth in a small town amongst the animals. But this is a royal birth, the birth of a king. So it's not surprising that there's some level of spectacular in this story. And it comes as we read on because the angels appear. From verse 8 we read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. See, this is the birth of a king. So the angels appear, the messengers of God come to declare the king has been born, the Messiah is here. And there's a few parts in the Bible I would love to be a fly on the wall for, and this is one of them. Imagine the scene, the shepherds are just out there doing their job at night time, taking care of their sheep, and all of a sudden they look up and there's an angel, and the glory of the Lord shines around this angel, and he proclaims the Messiah has been born. What a moment. And then all these other angels appear, and it says a great company of the heavenly host started proclaiming the glory of God. This is kind of military language, like a great company is a unit of soldiers or an army, because this is the king being born. This is his army, the angels. What a scene. They break out in song and they praise God for what he has done. And now this is the third time so far in Luke that angels have appeared. The first was back when Zechariah heard from the angel. And remember that Zechariah was kind of doubtful. He didn't really trust what the angel said and, and he was made mute because of it. But then we saw that Mary, uh, she trusted what the angel said. And then here, as the angels appear to the shepherds, at first they're terrified, which is probably understandable given the circumstances. But look at their response to what the angels have said to them. From verse 15 we read on, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. 
All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And then we hear that on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given them, given him before he was conceived. So the shepherds, although they're terrified by these angels, they trust what the angels have said. And they head straight to Bethlehem. Notice that it gives us the description. They hurried off. They couldn't wait to get there. And once they saw the baby Jesus, they couldn't wait to share the news. They go out and they spread it with everyone that they see, the good news that the Saviour has been born. And even as they're going back to return to their sheep, back to their jobs, they are glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd heard and seen because they were just the way they'd been told. So there's a kind of sequence in uh, the start of Luke's gospel of responses to the angels. We have Zechariah who doubted. We have Mary who was unsure but trusted. But then we have the shepherds who trusted and then they obeyed and went and then they rejoiced and praised God. So the most faithful response we get to God's messengers in these chapters is from shepherds. Now that might not sound... Uh, overly impressive, but why is it important about the shepherds? Well, let's take a little bit of time now to think about what shepherds were like back in those days. Now, as I prepared uh, this talk, I thought I'd do a fun thing. I go into one of those AI picture generators and I type in uh, shepherds in the Bible and see what AI thinks that shepherds in the Bible look like. And they did pretty well. This is a pretty decent photo. Don't look too closely at the faces because they're a bit weird because the AI is a bit like that. But this is generally how we think of shepherds, kind of uh, outbacky kind of people with their robes and their sheep around them. For some reason, they're always ruggedly handsome. But this is often the picture we think of when we hear shepherds in the Bible and hear shepherds in this story, don't we? Or maybe around Christmas time, this is what we think of the shepherds. Cute little kids uh, dressed up as shepherds around the manger with Joseph and Mary there and the little sheep. But I think this is actually how we should think about the shepherds. If you don't know, I don't know why you don't know, but these are the wet bandits from Home Alone. Right, these are dirty, stinking robbers. See, that's what the shepherds were known as in the time of Jesus. The shepherds were outcasts of Jewish society. They weren't even able to take part in the the ritual ceremonies that the Jews did because of their work. They were constantly working with animals. They were unclean. And they were known as being thieves and liars amongst the Jewish people. I want to share now with you a couple of passages that come from the Jewish Talmud. Now, if you don't know what a Talmud is, it's a compilation of uh, Jewish texts and oral traditions, and it's kind of an expansive commentary on the Bible. All these uh, wise Jewish people over the history have, have looked at the Bible and expanded it, and the Jewish people took that as their law of the day. And just like the Bible, there's, there's chapters and there's verses that you can look up, and here's a couple of passages uh, from the Jewish Talmud around the time of Jesus that speak about shepherds. They're a bit different to what we see in the Bible. This is the first one. It comes from the book of Bavakama, chapter 10, verse 9. It says, One may not purchase wool, milk, and kids from the shepherds who tend the flocks of others, due to the concern that they have stolen these items from the owners 
of the flocks. You can't buy anything from a shepherd that's untrustworthy. Here's a second one from the book of Sanhedrin. This is in a whole list of people who are not allowed to go to court to give witness to something that's happened. It says, The sages further added to the following, the list of those disqualified from bearing witness. The shepherds who shepherd their animals in the fields of others and are therefore considered like robbers. The collectors of the government taxes and the custom officials who collect customs in an illegal manner. See, we should think about the shepherds the same way we think about the tax collectors. Those government officials who stole from the people. This is how the people thought of shepherds. They were dirty, stinking thieves. But God chose to bring the good news of the birth of the son, of his son, the king, to shepherds. And it's the shepherds who trust and obey and rejoice in what God has told them. See, if Luke was trying to make up a story about the birth of the most important person in his book, he would not have chosen shepherds. They are the worst people you could choose to be witnesses to the thing you're trying to tell people happened because their witness was written off. They weren't trustworthy. But why include the shepherds in this story? Well, because the shepherds point to something about the king that's being born. Why did God reveal his message of the king to shepherds? Because it shows that this king is not like the kings of this world. This king doesn't live in a world that doesn't intersect with people like shepherds. No, he lives exactly in that world. This king is God who humbled himself, came down into our world, even became a baby, a helpless baby with young parents in a manger on a cold night. But this baby declared the salvation of people just like shepherds, people who were rejected, people who weren't given a second thought. That's who God's king came for. God's king, he's approachable, he's relatable and he's near to those who others reject. God reveals this incredible plan to save the world to a bunch of shepherds in a paddock. That is remarkable. And that is the remarkable thing about this story. A story of God's king being born. So as we come and look at this familiar story today, a story that we've heard, we've seen acted out before our eyes at Christmas time, I want you to know that if you know this king, if you serve this king, remember the kind of king that you serve. Because sometimes we get lost thinking that God is like kings of this earth, that there are barriers between us and God, that there are ways in which God is unapproachable, he can't relate to us. But Jesus' birth reminds us that God is not like that. God's king is nothing like that. God brought his good news to shepherds and his king was born in a manger. That is the way, that is the king that we serve.
And it's that king who would take service and humility to the point of dying for the people who rejected him. Katie and I love singing Florence lullabies to help her go to sleep. And one of our favourite lullabies we sing her is Jesus Strong and Kind. That's a song written by Colin Buchanan and City of Light. And there's a wonderful verse in it that says, Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come to me. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. See, that is our king. Jesus strong and kind. Jesus humble baby born in a manger. Jesus approachable, relatable and near to those who reject him. And if that is our king, then we need to share that with the world. And not just with those who are like us. See, God didn't share that news with people that were like him. Far from it. God shared the news of his saviour with downcast and rejected shepherds. And those shepherds believed what they heard. So we can often, uh, when we think about sharing the gospel, think about those who are kind of like us. Are the people in our world who we get along with and maybe it's easy to chat with. But what about those people who are hard to talk to? What about that neighbour that everyone kind of says, oh, don't go there? What about those members of our family who are just a bit odd and we don't really chat to that much? Our weird cousin or... Strange uncle. So the good news of Jesus as king is for those people just as much as it is for us or for King Charles. So the angels declared this is good news that will cause joy for all people. So over the next term or so, we as a church really want to focus on evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus. And that's why we're looking at Taste and See at camp. Uh, We're going to look at an opportunity to invite people to hear this good news. Can I encourage you to not just think about those people that are like you? Can I encourage you to think about how you can build relationships with the rejected, the outsider, the downcast? the awkward neighbour, the strange family member? How can you start a relationship with them to share the gospel? Could you have them at your table? Invite them for dinner, a cup of tea? Because in this story we see that all people are invited to God's table. He doesn't discriminate. And if you don't know this King Jesus today... If you've never considered what happened at Christmas time when he was born, can I really encourage you to get to know him? Put aside what you might have heard about this Jesus and just come to him to get to know him. He's nothing like the kings of this earth. He's not living a life that was distant from us. No, he lived our life. 
He came into our world. He knows what it's like. Jesus was born into an ordinary family. He was born in a small town. He was even rejected by his own family and friends. But he didn't hold that against them. No, he loved those who rejected him and he even died for them. So even if you've rejected Jesus, or even if you just haven't given him a second thought, can I encourage you, get to know him today. He's approachable, relatable, and near. How can you do that? Well, you can talk to him. We call that prayer. That's why we pray as a church. We talk to our wonderful King Jesus. And you can read all about him in the Bible. That's why we're opening up Luke's Gospel today. If you don't know how to read the Bible or you don't know how to pray, I would love to chat with you and and talk to you how you can do it because it's the best thing. It's the best thing to come to know our King who came to serve and love us. So how about we talk to our King now and thank him for coming to us. Let's pray. King Jesus, we... We come to you today as your servants. Lord, you are the king over all. You are the king over creation. You are the king even over King Charles. You are the king over the ocean. You are the king over the sun and the wind. Lord, you hold all things in your hands and yet you came down to us. Lord, you came down to a humble family in a small town. You came to be born as a baby to show us that you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be one of us. And Lord, we thank you that you know grief and pain. You know suffering even to the point of suffering for those who have rejected you. Lord, we acknowledge that all of us here today have rejected you. We thank you so much that you didn't reject us. Lord, thank you that you came so that we might know you, our great and wonderful King, humble and relatable and near to us. Thank you that you are near to us today and you are near to us right now, that we can go up to you. And one day we will go up to you and give you a big hug and say thank you. Thank you for breaking down the barriers between God, holy and other, and us sinful people. We praise you and thank you, King Jesus, in your awesome name.